You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're looking at the end, chapter 28. And we'll be reading together verses 30 and 31. This is on page 938 of the Pew Bible, and we're looking at Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Hear the word of God. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, we have finally arrived at the end of our exposition through the book of Acts. It has taken us 108 sermons over the course of two and a half years, and I am thankful. You may have noticed that our translation omits verse 29 from the text. Did you see that? 28 to 30. In the King James, verse 29 says this, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. That's verse 29. And as you can see, that verse, as it's written, contains nothing of great significance or critical importance. I realize that anything in the word of God is significant. Nothing is unimportant. I know that. And if that verse was inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we must recognize its authority. But while all things in the Word of God are of equal authority, not all things in the Word of God are of equal weight. There are weightier matters of the law, for example. And uninspired verses have no authority and no weight. So the church has to do the hard work of recognition. The omission of verse 29 in our translation might be a little confusing to some, which is why I'm talking about it. You see, we have thousands of copies, literally tens of thousands of copies of the original text of inspired scripture. And that original text was God-breathed, infallible, and absolutely without error. Perfect. And yet... Because of human fallibility, copyists through the centuries made slight mistakes in their copies of the original. So over time, for various reasons, things were changed or added or deleted in the copies. So the original was inspired, inerrant, infallible. The copies may have slight mistakes. But God has preserved his word so that nothing he revealed is lost. Thank God for that. 
The church examines and compares all the copies so as to recognize the inspired word of God. And with prayer and diligent study, with the help of the Holy Spirit, she's able to recognize the inspired word. This is the work of what we call textual criticism, in which the church recognizes the true text. So regarding verse 29, some manuscripts include it, better and older texts omit it. So what's the church to do? The church recognizes that somewhere along the line, the copyists added the verse. In removing it, nothing of significance is adversely affected, and so it is with all the copyists' mistakes. Our English translation is completely reliable, and the God's word is in front of us. We can be thankful for that. So Luke sums up the activity of Paul by giving details of his incarceration at Rome. For two years, he was imprisoned at his own expense, and yet he was able to socialize. He had appealed to Caesar, remember? But as is in our day, so then, the wheels of justice were moving slowly, oh so slowly. And when finally he did appear before the emperor, he barely escaped death. He tells us about this in 2 Timothy 4. This is what he says. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, tradition says that after being set free from this, he went to Spain, to Crete, back to Judea, and then he returned once again to Rome. And it was on that second trip to Rome that he was beheaded at the end of Nero's reign. On this first trip to Rome during his two-year imprisonment, see how Luke sums it up. The apostle welcomed all who came to him. He preached to all people and to any people. He was ready to preach in season and out of season to anybody who would listen. As Matthew Henry says, he was not afraid of the greatest nor ashamed of the meanest. And we're told here that he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. These two themes are inseparable and interrelated. Paul avoided philosophy Politics, current affairs, vain speculations. As an apostle, as a Christian minister, his focus was very specific and narrow, as we said in there. He would not meddle in the affairs of the kingdom of kingdoms of this world. He was Christ's ambassador, and as such, he dealt with Christ's kingdom. And when Jesus began his ministry, he announced the arrival of that kingdom. God's gracious reign broke into human history in the person of Jesus. That long-awaited eschatological kingdom had pierced time and space. A remarkable event. And this is why Paul was teaching about Jesus to convey the facts of his life and ministry. 
Paul taught about the humiliation and exaltation of the Son of God. He taught them about the life, death, and resurrection of the Christ. And he must have explained, I believe, our Lord's heavenly session where he's praying for us and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These things are all important facts showing that the kingdom indeed has come. And in verse 28, Paul said the Gentiles would listen, and for two years they did. They listened. He preached and he taught, we're told, with all boldness and without hindrance. So he remained in custody, but here we have this man who was fearless in proclaiming the gospel. He did so without concealment, without equivocation, without fear of consequences. As John Stott put it, though he was chained, the word of God was not. And so the book of Acts concludes on this wonderful note of triumph. God's truth is marching on. And the first thing for you and I to consider is the nature of the kingdom of God. That word kingdom, it may stand for something concrete as a territory, in the Old Testament, for example, Israel was a kingdom over which God had placed Jewish kings. It was concrete. It had borders. There were subjects. You could identify this geographical region as the kingdom. Thus, in Exodus 19, Moses could describe the Israelites as a kingdom of priests. That's one way to understand the word kingdom. But the word kingdom may also be more abstract and stand in general for God's reign or his rule over all things. The prophet Ob Obadiah predicts the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And in so doing, he looks to the future when Yahweh's supremacy is exercised and universally acknowledged. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. And I believe it is with that meaning that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He wasn't preaching about the nation of Israel. He was preaching about the absolute reign of God. God is the Almighty, and He has all authority. He wields infinite power. But then, the kingdom as God's reign and rule itself might be understood in two different ways. Bear with me. On the one hand is his universal kingdom over which he has complete authority. And this is the universal reign of God, his absolute supremacy over all things. He rules the universe. He governs heaven and earth, things both visible and invisible, things we can't even see. He is the absolute monarch and the eternal sovereign and the almighty creator and judge. All leaders on this earth of any kind are mere deputies governing under the sovereign. So the psalmist can say something like this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. On the other hand, is Christ's mediatorial kingdom over which Jesus reigns supreme. The kingdom, in this sense, refers to his power and his authority as our mediator. 
Jesus, the God-man, was established as king by divine appointment. Isn't this what Paul meant when he writes in Ephesians 1? God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you see, very specifically, Christ rules from sea to sea as the head and the husband of the church. And I believe it was this mediatorial kingdom to which Paul was referring in his ministry at Rome. This is proved, I think, by the close link between the kingdom of God and the things of Christ. Paul was preaching the gospel. He was telling them of the Messiah's eschatological kingdom. And with that post-resurrection clarity, he could explain it more fully. Which leads to the second thing. Paul's teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think how comprehensive that is. His teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all kinds of things. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, along with preaching the kingdom, Paul taught about the king. He must have emphasized the whole history of Christ and his ministry. I'm sure he told them about his incarnation, the great mystery of godliness, the first step of our Lord's humiliation, which required infinite condescension from heaven to earth, the infinite God assuming human nature, born as a baby to a poor, obscure woman in a sin-cursed world. That's infinite condescension. And Paul also here must have rehearsed the life of Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law. He endured all the indignities of this fallen world and the weaknesses of human nature. And those were not sinful weaknesses, but things like hunger and thirst and weariness. These are frailties that are common to the nature of man, and Jesus endured them. And thus, as we're told in Acts 4, he is a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yes, never once. Did he sin? Never once did he break a command. He had a perfect life. And that perfection, we're taught, is imputed, reckoned, assigned to believers. That's why I had him read 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ was not made a sinner. He was made sin, a sacrifice for our sin. All the guilt of all the saints of all the ages was heaped upon the sinless Christ. And throughout life, he looked like a sinner, he was treated as a sinner, and he was made to suffer like a sinner. But he himself was holy, innocent, unstained, and separate from sinners. And what's amazing to me, 
the merit of his righteous life is reckoned to every sincere believer. Isn't that incredible? Because without that righteousness, his righteousness clothing us, neither you nor I could ever stand before God. The psalmist in Psalm 76 says to the Lord, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? The angels fell when they sinned. Adam was exiled from Eden when he sinned. Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar all buckled under God's power. There is no one in heaven or hell who can stand beneath God's wrath. Only the Son of God incarnate was able to sustain the human nature under that massive load, the infinite wrath of God. So the Bible teaches that blessed are those, and those only, I will add, who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 14, the apostle John looking into the heavenly realm, he hears this voice from heaven. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then you know something the apostle Paul must have told them about Christ's suffering and death. He had to. Surely he explained to them the cross where Jesus shed that atoning blood pointing to Isaiah 53, saying that Christ bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Would Paul ever preach without mentioning Christ crucified? The incarnate Son of God went to his death because of my iniquities and yours. Our sins were piled upon him our punishment was meted out upon him. Peter, inspired by the Spirit, says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So don't think for a moment that the Apostle Paul neglected to tell them about the cross. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. But he bled, and he died, and he was buried in a tomb for the joy of our salvation. And hence the requirements of the law were fulfilled by his life, and the demands of justice were satisfied by his death. And this is his active and passive obedience. And that righteousness is received by faith. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God gives us this blessing, this gift, this instrument of faith so that we can receive the merit of Christ's death. And for that reason, and for that reason alone, believers may now stand before his thrice holy presence. And this is important. This is eternally significant. And the stakes are incredibly high. To the Jews, once Jesus said this, do you remember? Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That was what our Lord said 
Unbelievers, by implication, are unpardoned, unforgiven, unfit to meet their maker. And so woe to that person who enters the next world with all of his sins upon him. You'll die in your sins. And let me just say that heaven and hell are real places. One is as everlasting as the other. And unbelief, unbelief is the barrier to the one and the easy pathway to the other. So you and I must answer the question. A question posed by Jesus Christ himself when he said to his disciples, as he now says to us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the question of all questions, isn't it? What do you think of Jesus? All his glory as the Christ, all the salvation of souls hangs on the glory of his person. What say you? Is he just a teacher? Is he a great leader, an administrator? Or is he the divine human savior? You have to answer that question. You can't leave it alone because that's an answer in and of itself. Moving on, I'm sure Paul told the Lord's burial in a borrowed tomb as the fulfillment of prophecy. And of course, when he was speaking to the Romans, he declared Jesus risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. There, highly exalted above all things, Christ reigns at God's right hand. And is there anyone who thinks that Paul omitted any or all of these things? In fact, I think he must have included far more because he taught them about the Lord Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel and the circle and circumference of the entire scriptures. All of history centers on Christ. He's the creator of the world and the redeemer of the church. So ministers and churches should always resist the temptations to diverge from Christ. He alone is the manna from heaven who is able to nourish the flock. One American writer says this. I believe he is a pastor. He writes, we have in our congregation a little deaf and dumb boy. And dumb meaning he can't speak. On Sunday, he loves to have his mother find for him the words that we are all singing, though the music never thrills his quiet ear nor touches his tender heart. He looks at the hymn and he glides his little finger over every word to the end. If he finds the word Jesus there, he's satisfied and absorbed to the close of the singing. But if that word Jesus is not there, he closes the book and will have nothing more to do with the hymn. I think we too should always ask the question, does this concern Jesus Christ? Does it tend to promote his glory? Does it encourage our faith in him and foster our obedience to him? Those are valid questions. Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ is Lord. So Luke goes on to say that the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ were advancing steadily. And when Jesus, you'll remember, commissioned the disciples as witnesses in chapter 1, it was highly unlikely that they would do so. Here they were, small in number, uneducated, untrained as followers of Christ. But the Spirit-empowered church began making disciples from all nations. And they, are not, they weren't using worldly means. They weren't using carnal weapons. All they were doing was simply preaching Christ. He's the king around whom all things in God's gracious kingdom revolve. And we discover that the glad tidings of eternal life in Christ even penetrated to the palace itself. Some of the praetorian guard, the secret service of the emperor, were converted. Isn't this an amazing demonstration of the riches of God's grace? The church advancing and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. And just as our Lord promised, the gospel ministry was gathering and perfecting the saints. Just as it's doing now. Because the church belongs to Jesus as an expression of his special peculiar kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom of which Jesus said it's not of this world. Otherworldly. Supernatural. He did admit he was a king. Just not like those of this world. Unlike other men, he was fully divine. Absolutely pure. Personally capable of ruling the universe. And yet, when King Jesus appeared on the scene, he was not attended by a splendid entourage. There were no armed guards. There was no secret service. There was no military protection for the baby Jesus. He didn't arrive in brilliant regalia. He was not wearing a magnificent clothing. His glory was veiled, his majesty was obscured, and his deity unrecognized. And no one but a very small remnant believed him to be anybody special. And yet, he lived and ministered in spiritual splendor as the king of a spiritual kingdom. Isn't this what the prophet predicted in Zechariah 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How unlike the world. His scepter was the word of God by which he ruled in the midst of his enemies. His subjects are born of God, begotten by the spirit and the word. His aim as a king was to save and sanctify these subjects for his own eternal glory. His weapons are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. His laws are spiritual, reaching down to the innermost recesses of your soul and mine. And his benefits? Spiritual, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so that leads to the third and final thing to consider. The significance of this kingdom for us. The truth of Christ, our king, and his eternal kingdom is a foundation for our faith. 
But there's only one way to enter his kingdom and become his subject. I'm sure you remember his conversation with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, highly trained, well-educated, apparently sincere, but afraid. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that is to say, no one can be a sincere Christian unless his heart is renewed. You remember that to enjoy the privileges of Israel, all you had to do was be born of Abraham. But to enjoy the privileges of Christ's kingdom, you have to be born of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural change that only God can bring about. Scripture likens it to a resurrection from the dead or to a new creation. And that's how a believer enters Christ's kingdom. There is no other way. And I'm confident that the Apostle Paul told his listeners about the truth of regeneration. We enter this world spiritually dead and laden with sin's guilt. There is in our hearts, by nature, no faith, no hope, no love for God or His Christ. We are not innocent at birth, but blameworthy and liable to punishment. And if left to ourselves to go our own way, we would inevitably perish. Therefore, the new birth is absolutely necessary if you and I are to be saved. And this comes about only by the Holy Spirit, who is divinely sovereign. So, we're in a pickle. You say to me, what can I do? No one can birth himself. Nobody can give himself existence. You ask any dead person to raise himself up, and he's not going to move a muscle. The almighty power of God must regenerate the soul or it will not live. But there is something we can do. We can place ourselves in such a way to be in a position to hear the word. Because as the apostle teaches us, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So it is by the instrument of this inspired word that the Spirit gives new life to sinners. Peter says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So with this in mind, we position ourselves so as to hear the word of truth. And then we pray. We pray that God of his free grace would by his spirit give us the gift of life. Because he alone can do it. Neither you nor I can bring about a supernatural change. Isn't this what Jeremiah said? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
You know, you can wash off the dirt from your skin, but you can't remove the stain from your soul. You can change your clothes, but you cannot change your nature. Sinners can no more renew themselves than the Ethiopian can change his skin. And so God says, preach Christ to them. Announce the gospel to them. He says, my spirit will remove that heart of stone and he'll give them a heart of flesh. And with supernatural divine power, that Holy Spirit can renew the human soul. It's supernatural. And that's why Jesus came into the world and died on a cross and rose from the grave so that we can be renewed. And don't miss the absolute necessity of it. Let me give you an example by way of analogy. If the sun shined upon a corpse, that corpse would neither see nor feel its light or warmth. You offer that corpse all the riches of the world, he couldn't reach out a hand to grab one penny. You tell that corpse, look, you're rotting and you're going to return to the dust. And that corpse couldn't do a thing about it. So, with an, so it is with an unconverted sinner. He can do all sorts of things to serve sin. But he has no heart for God, no desire for the riches of Christ, no concern for the afterlife, and therefore he needs the Spirit to give him new birth, to renew him by the instrument of the Word. And that's why we position ourselves within the hearing of Christ's gospel. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Heaven may be reached without money or rank or learning, but it is clear as daylight if words have any meaning at all, that nobody can enter heaven without a new birth. No earthly change can substitute for the change that comes from above. Have you been born again? Has the Spirit renewed and enlivened your heart? Is Jesus Christ precious to you? That's one of the most clearest evidences of all. Do you find joy in his public worship? Look to see if the fruits of his gracious power are at work in your soul. Primarily, do you love the brethren? Do you love the saints? As difficult and troublesome as we can be, do you love us as brethren? Let's pray that all who hear this will be numbered among those who are born into his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ himself and all that he has accomplished. And we're grateful for the Holy Spirit of Christ who applies the merit of his obedience and death to us so that we can enter into your kingdom. We ask that you'll receive our praise because we offer it with joy and gratitude in our hearts for Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.